Hi, I'm Tom Melville. Welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. This week we're going to Cabago, where some residents are still grappling with the devastation of last year's New Year's Eve fire. So many things happened all at once and no one knew. Like You only knew what was happening in your little bit of territory because you, you couldn't travel the roads. The roads were covered in trees by that stage. The whole place was as though a bomb had gone through the place. First, though, my colleagues at The Daily Liberal, based in Dubbo, have a story to share. Hi, I'm Melanda Rumming. I've been writing about Dubbo's need for a drug court and rehabilitation centre for six years. And I'm Zakasha Marlin, court and crime reporter at The Daily Liberal. This is an issue that's really important to the people of Dubbo. In recent days, New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro announced the state budget would include $7.5 million for a Dubbo rehab centre, something campaigners have long argued for. There was no mention, however, of the long sought-after drug court. Just a warning, this episode discusses suicide. If you need to speak to someone, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Zakasha and Orlando take it from here. In Dubbo, drugs are everywhere. The crisis here has brought with it an epidemic of mental health struggles, homelessness, family violence and crime that is only getting worse. At the moment, people in Dubbo brought into court on drug offences often wind up in a vicious cycle of addiction and despair, which is difficult to escape. Jail is often the only option for magistrates. Earlier this year, the New South Wales inquiry into the ICE epidemic handed down its report. A key recommendation was to expand the drug court system in the state. This would give magistrates more options for drug-addicted, non-violent offenders, potentially saving them from prisons which are rife with drugs, and getting them the help they need. At this point, it's unknown whether a drug court is coming to Dubbo. At the same time, a loose coalition of counsellors, politicians, desperate parents, former addicts and lawyers have successfully lobbied for a detox and rehab centre to be built in the town. At the moment, people looking to get clean face a long journey from home to rehab centres several hours' drive away. The state government just announced funding for the rehab centre. For that coalition, these two issues are inextricably linked and offer hope that perhaps there are solutions to a problem which has scarred Dubbo for years. To find out more, we went out and met the people who've been advocating around this. I met Rick and Carolyn Lean at a Q&A panel on the need for a rehabilitation centre in Dubbo. After an emotional hour-long discussion, they agreed to speak to me about the son they lost to suicide two years ago after a long battle with addiction and mental health problems. That night was the first time they shared their story. As people were packing up around us, they took the time to tell me about Cameron. When did you notice that was an issue? About 2014, I think it was. His behaviour changed, inconsistent in his decision-making. Angry, volatile, yeah. Never heard Unpredictable. Never physically Never heard ever heard a soul. Would he hit his head on a big wall rather than hurt yeah. anyone yeah. when he was angry? And the weird thing was... When he got arrested and he lose his licence for six months or 12 months, whatever, he would never, ever get behind the wheel, even when he was... Cameron grew up in Dubbo and moved away from family to Newcastle. His parents have seen what happens when someone winds up ricocheting around the justice system. They were in and out of court so much trying to support Cameron any way they could, the magistrate came to know them. It was very obvious he wanted to do more, but he couldn't. I mean, he, he looked at us in court. Then at one point, he even waved to us, which yes. I thought... I was yes. a bit strange. Like he, he built up a away. rapport with us because we were always there every us. day. He just saw us there in the court every day. Yeah. So, because Cameron just didn't go to court once. He went quite a few times. They were quite a lot of And there were always traffic offences. Like he'd get caught speeding cars when he's like, fast Cameron's story is like a lot of others out there. Promising young person winds upon drugs and their life completely derails. For Cameron, to get anything other than a custodial sentence, he needed a drug court. 
His parents are convinced the threat of prison is what drove him to take his own life. He told them, often. I think the magistrate knew Cameron was unwell and he was drug affected. I think he was, he was trying his best to do something that was going to be a good outcome for him. For Rick and Carolyn, a drug court and rehab in Dubbo would prevent other parents going through what they had to go through. It's not just saving lives, it's saving people from, it's saving family dysfunction. Families become very dysfunctional when you have an addicted person living with you. It tears at your heart because you don't know what to do about it. There's no guidance there for the people around. I met Anne-Marie in her office in the centre of town. She was eating breakfast as we spoke. Anne-Marie knows what it's like to battle with addiction but she's doing well thanks to some of the services available to her here in Dubbo. She has asked that we only use her first name. The mother of three is speaking out in the hope her experiences will add weight to the debate over a drug court in Dubbo. Basically, like a lot of people that I know, I fell into bad habits as a teenager. I didn't understand about life or about communication and didn't understand how to live so fell into a way of life that included using drugs. Anne-Marie says she's clean thanks to a live-in program close to home here in Dubbo. It's an experience she thinks everyone deserves. Prior to that, we, we lived in Gill, like we're from Gill and Gilgandra, and um, I had been sent to Bloomfield and that's so far away and it's so scary and you don't know what's happening and you feel really disconnected and... So I actually rang my mum and I was like, you need to come and get me because this isn't working. And lucky for me, mum come and got me and we sought other avenues to help, which was I went to drug and alcohol counselling and I just told the counsellor I needed childhood sexual assault help and that's how I got into Lindara. So being here in Dubbo meant that family could come and visit me. They're only a phone call away. I didn't feel afraid as much as I did when I had to leave and be so far away. Um, just made a massive difference. Responses that we've seen and that we've seen for a long time, such as using prisons as a way of dealing with people who are committing crimes in various forms, don't work and they haven't worked for a long time. Pat O'Callaghan came to the Daily Liberal offices on Talbragar Street to speak to me. He's a solicitor who works with disadvantaged people and he's been on the forefront of the campaign for local Dubbo Rehabilitation Centre and Drug Court for decades. As long as you continue to use that as your primary way of dealing with people's issues that aren't justice-related or criminal-related, you're going to continue to see failures in terms of outcomes. So for our clients in particular, um, you know, access to these facilities such as a drug and alcohol detox and rehab facility is a crucial way for them to be able to manage issues that they've got going on in their life that are primarily health-based issues, not criminal justice-related issues. At the moment, Dubbo's local rehabilitation centre is several hours away. There's also always a waiting list, which can sometimes stretch for weeks. For drug addicts who have decided to make a change, that's a long time. And a lot can happen. There is a small rehab centre for teens in Dubbo, but it only has eight beds. For a lot of people, the distance itself can make the journey daunting and impossible. The recently announced rehab centre for Dubbo would remove that barrier. Pat says staying close to home is particularly important for First Nations people trying to get clean. It allows First Nations people from out this way to stay on country and to stay close to family and to stay close to what they're connected to and to who they're with. And that's a really significant thing and it's a really important thing because they're often asked to go away to other rehab facilities in 
Sydney or Wajeli or wherever it might yeah. be, for extended periods of time, you know, three months if they're lucky, but often six to 12 months, um, it's inevitably setting them up to fail often yeah. as well because they're away from everyone they know, they're in a strange place, they're off their country and they try to stick it out as long as they can and for whatever reason it becomes really difficult and hard to manage. For a lot of people struggling with addiction, the drugs aren't the only issue. Domestic violence is often prevalent in drug households. In Dubbo, the domestic violence rate is consistently three times higher than the state average. There's about three cases reported per day. Pat argues that for this reason, a local rehab centre is crucial. The opportunity to be able to do it locally would be really beneficial to their circumstances to be able to even maintain their housing situation as well by having somebody close that can support them to do that. And obviously when they can, you know, get out and about and whatnot from time to time, then they're doing a familiar territory. Pat says local services are particularly important to single parents. In particular, young mothers who are single mothers but have been in domestic violence relationships and with young, sort of got young children, you know, their partner either introduced them to or was a significant factor in their getting into drug and alcohol addiction. They managed to either through their own strength and support get away from that relationship but need some assistance to then deal with those drug and alcohol issues and being able to do it locally means they can have their children with them or at least they know their children are with family locally and are in the same place. Um, This is certainly significant. Yeah, I've seen plenty of cases of that type of story where having it locally just means they're going to be willing to access it. Anne-Marie knows what that's like trying to get off the drugs when you're in a completely foreign environment. Yeah, so connection to country is absolutely huge. I think that the reason why the program I did worked for me is because I was still out here on country. I wasn't taken away. Um, When I was taken away, all I wanted to do was come home. So I think for the four days that I was up in Orange, I couldn't concentrate on anything else other than wanting to come home. So when I did come home back to country and mum and dad got me into the program here, it was easy. I was quite comfortable staying. I didn't want to come home because I was already home. Um, So that fear was gone and that makes a massive difference. Anne-Marie, who now runs a mentoring service, has worked with people still struggling with drug addiction. We've actually gotten them into rehab, which is a long way away. And what we found is they'll go, they'll stay for a certain amount of time or period then they often come home and the problem with it is is that they are so far away they feel completely disconnected from everyone and everything that they know and it's a scary experience they actually feel alone so having a drug rehab here in Dubbo in our local area would hopefully mean that they would stay and finish the program because the benefits that they're missing out on by not finishing are huge oh, I'm just working with um, women and kids and men who have been Sexually abused or domestic yeah. violence or... Do you enjoy it? I enjoy the rewards that come out of it. You know, like I don't enjoy what happens to the women or the men. Yeah. Especially the kids, like, you know, they're the ones that really suffer. Jimmy Forrest works for the Dubbo Neighbourhood Centre as an Indigenous health worker. He's a well-known and well-loved figure around Dubbo. Jimmy's worked with clients suffering from domestic violence and sexual abuse. In his experience, it often comes back to drugs, primarily ice. Yeah, well, they need money to feed their habits uh, and they spend all the money and then the issues come along, you know. 
violence comes along, well, you know, that's when they start fighting and, and if they haven't got the money, they, they fight and then these violence comes along and happens. Having been on the front line of this fight for decades, Jimmy was a little jaded at what he saw as inaction of the part of decision makers. We need to do something about it instead of talking all the time. Like, you know, we have too many meetings and I know money is a big thing. Two years ago, we had a meeting with the politicians. Just nothing. Like, I never even found out what, what happened there. They talk about this and talk about that. And they say, yeah, we'll do this, we do that. Well, they just don't do it. Next thing you hear, they stop doing it, and then next thing you hear, they've got a meeting on about it. So that's the same with Aboriginal Koori Youth Court. First off, we had a big meeting at the courthouse. There was about probably 50 people there. Next time we had a meeting at the DNC, there was about probably 30 people there. And that was it then. We had no more meetings after that. The state government's commitment to a rehab centre seems to finally have arrived. Whether a drug court will be established to complement it is yet unknown. Do you feel like you'd be able to make more of a difference if you did have these options for people? Like you could, for example, someone comes to you who's committed domestic violence and you could get them into rehab? Oh, I, I think it would, yeah, because a lot of the times there's no place for them yet. Like, you know, you, you try and get into rehab up the coast and there's a waiting list. Yeah. And once you've got a waiting list, like if you've got a six-week stay, eight weeks waiting list, they won't stay there like they put other stuff is and move on. You need something for them to go to straight away. The New South Wales government announced $7.5 million in funding to be included in the state budget for a drug rehabilitation centre here in Dubbo. Crucially, though, there was no mention of the drug court in the state government's announcement, something proponents have long argued should be opened alongside it. A drug court is a speciality court where magistrates have more options for sentencing drug-addicted offenders, which can keep them out of prison and on the road to recovery. Dougald Saunders is the New South Wales MP for Dubbo and a member of the Nationals. We meet in his office down the road. He tells me he's always been supportive of something like this and has personally lobbied his colleagues in government. It's a solution I think that we need to be looking at. I don't think anyone's happy with building more jails and filling more jail cells. We need to try and address some things at the other end. That includes maybe a drug court, maybe a curry court, that sort of scenario, as well as rehab and detox. The whole thing needs to play a role in the, in the solution towards you know, helping people get, get past drugs. Do you think it's worth the money? I do. I really do. And I think you know, it's, it's easy to say this is costing a lot. And there'll be a lot of people who say, well, we don't really need drug rehab, just lock people up. But I think you know, in this day and age, we know there are so many other things that happen in our lives that we need help with. Drugs is one of those. It's a growing problem, not just in our region, but across the entire regional areas of New South Wales and city areas. So if we can start looking at better ways of helping people, if we can start finding out how to solve those problems better at the start, rather than just throwing them in jail, we still need jails. We definitely do. And not everyone will go through rehab successfully. And there will still be criminals who use drugs. It doesn't mean we can't help those that need the help at the same time. Dougal believes the government needs to be responsible for the rehab centre after it opens. There does need to be some really strong governance around how a facility like this runs. We've seen non-government organisations run them successfully in the past. I'm sure there will be bids for non-government organisations to look at running this, but I think it's also really important that the governance is probably controlled by the health department 
I think it'll be a combination of government, i.e. health, and non-government organisations running this for the benefit of everyone. The state government's announcement for a drug court and rehabilitation centre in Dubbo has come after decades of petitioning and lobbying. Why keep that going? I mean, after 10 years, surely you just think it's not going to happen. I suppose, I mean, I came to Dubbo to work at the Aboriginal Legal Service and in that job you represent hundreds of people, uh, you meet their families and I just grew quite quickly to understand uh, the pressing need for these services, but also just to understand on a human level the damage that is being caused by not having them here. Stephen Lawrence is Deputy Mayor of Dubbo Regional Council, and he's been beating the drum on this for a decade. He's a self-described perennial country Labor candidate for the area, having been beaten in various state and federal elections over the past few years. He says a rehab centre goes hand-in-hand with a drug court. We certainly hope that the drug court's going to be funded at the same time, And the residential rehab and detox centre is essential for the operation of a drug court. You can't have a drug court function properly without that centre. So we're very much hoping that those two things are twinned and that there's an announcement in the state budget uh, that will get the funding. So, yeah, it's been a pretty long process, best part of 10 years. So, yeah, hoping that it ends positively. Stephen says crime and drug use are inextricably linked. So people in the community as well as on council that might have quite different views about where the emphasis should be in particular ways, might have different views about law and order and sentencing and all those sorts of things, might have strong views about personal responsibility and what people should or shouldn't be doing. They still support these services because everyone knows that it's better to treat these problems at the outset and prevent you know, much worse problems down the track. Stephen says the Dubbo community is united in wanting the rehabilitation centre and a drug court. My sense of it is that people across the whole community, across all the divides in the community, are 100% supportive of this because everyone, you know, at the end of the day wants the same thing. They want a reduction in drug-related crime. They want people in their families that are having these problems to get treatment. They want people that they're friends with having these problems to get treatment. Everyone knows someone who they went to school with, who's a shell of their former self. You see them walking around the street. So this is something that touches everyone in the community and everyone wants the same thing, even if you know there might be very different ideas about how to get there. And the announcement is not before time too, because Jimmy Forrest believes the drug problem in Dubbo is only getting worse. Well, they're not getting any better anyway, so... It's not just Dubbo, it's all around the place. All these little places are getting bad for drugs and, and Wellington's always been bad, but even the smaller places are getting a lot of drugs, like, you know, 40 years ago there was no drugs around. Well, I lived in Narromine and uh, drugs started there, I mean, in the 1980, I think they started there. It's so hard seeing the change, knowing yeah, it's like it's, being a drug-free little town and now looking yeah. now. Well, you look at it now, like, you know. What's the solution? Well, that's it. Rehab. But we just got to all come together and make sure we can get it. If you can't get a rehab, then, like, there's no hope for them. Anne-Marie agrees that the local drug rehab centre is an important way forward. Rehab is absolutely imperative to taking those people away from the stressful part, the, the hurtful part of life, and putting them somewhere safe where they can be cared about, where they can take the time that they need to learn to be resilient. It is the most important thing in the whole wide world for somebody who wakes up one day and goes, I don't want to live like this anymore, that they have somewhere safe to go. 
and that they can go there and be loved to good health. Because honest to God, you can't punish someone to get better. You need to love them to good health. Drugs have destroyed hundreds of lives in Dubbo and thousands more across the country. There's broad agreement that the current system doesn't function as it should and that prison doesn't always work for people with complex needs. The people we've spoken to believe the best way forward is a local rehab centre and a local drug court. With the government's funding announcement, a rehab centre is on the way, but there's still a long way to go for Dubbo. However, Rick and Carolyn are going to keep fighting. And people are hesitant to talk about suicide. Yes, it's not. A and because I mean, it's just it's emotional, emotional and sad that it is for us. And you revisit stuff that it's very horrible and hard. But the point of the conversation is we need some help here in Dublin to get this drug rehab and this drug court. And the detox thing, we need that in We need six of them. <laughs> you know? Exactly. 15 beds is not going to They're doing it so no one ever has to go through what they've been through. If it makes a difference to just one family or one person who's struggling, it's worth it. That story from Zakasha Marlin and Orlando Rumming from The Daily Liberal. And again, if you need to speak to someone, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Now, it wasn't the first fire of last summer's horror season. It wasn't the most destructive necessarily in terms of life lost or infrastructure destroyed. But for many of us, what happened in the far south coast town of Cabago on New Year's Eve 2019 came to define Australia's black summer. The rage and the heartache felt by its 800 residents were felt by all of us. The smoke has lifted now. The dams are full. The blackened rubble which haunted Cabago for months after the fires took so much has been cleared but it's almost a year later and scars are yet to form. As far as the majority of the country and planet are concerned, the bushfire crisis is over. A new crisis has taken hold. The pandemic. But for the people of Cabago, it's just another layer. Homes and businesses need to be rebuilt, lives pieced back together. COVID-19 has made all of this harder. What follows is the story of the people of Cabago, and the months since a terrible force of nature made their town famous. About three or four days prior to New Year's Eve, we became aware of a small fire in the Wadbilliga wilderness, about 50 kilometres to the west of Cabago, in an area now known as the Badger Creek Road area. And it trickled around up there for a couple of days. John Walters has volunteered with his local RFS for six years. His house, which he fought for and saved on New Year's Eve, is just around the corner from Cabago's main street. Like many of his New South Wales RFS colleagues, his was a busy and harrowing summer. I guess in the moment, with the resources that were devoted to full-scale outbreaks a little bit further north of our area, it would be fair to say that the focus from, I guess, the RFS level was not entirely on this little fire here. It was in a remote area and wasn't considered at that point to be an an imminent threat. It's the sort of judgement call experienced men and women made hundreds of times over the summer. But fires are wild and capricious and aren't on your side. Tony Allen was mayor of Bega Valley Shire for seven years and is now a local councillor. He lives on a dairy farm just outside of town. We knew that there was the possibility of a fire uh, during the day uh, before it actually came and uh, people were becoming quite nervous and quite concerned. 
making preparations. I think there were people who had actually been preparing for a week just in case. At this point, Tony's farm was dry. This was the height of the drought, but they still had some water in dams and made sure their IBC tanks were full and that their milking cows were close to the dairy. On the afternoon before the fire, he had tea with his son. The messages they were getting suggested the fire was still 20 to 30 k's away. They waited. The sky became very, 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 very red, and it was obvious that there was something happening at the back. You could start to hear a, a rumble. And at that stage, my wife and uh, we had grandchildren in the house. They all left, went to Cabago, and then eventually on to Bermagui. But uh, my son and I stayed. We... Um, Waited a few hours and you, you could you, you could hear and see this enormous redness in the sky and you could hear the sound of this ferocious beast. You didn't know what to expect or how you were going to be engaged, but you, could, you knew something was coming. And then all of a sudden, suddenly these embers started to fly and paddocks lit up. At the fire ground, information was patchy. John says the government radio repeaters they were relying on were taken out by the fire. They were basically only able to communicate from truck to truck. Unbeknownst to us while we were down the road at Verona and Corma, a second front had come out of the wilderness a little bit further north than the first one and was now headed straight for the village of Cavago. So we came back up the highway to Cavago and headed back out to the west where we were confronted with an appalling wall of fire, just the most unusual fire behaviour, fire behaviour that had never been seen before, great plasma gas balls, you know, uh, flames rolling down the sides of open paddocks and so forth. Tony was in the thick of it, fighting to save his home and dairy. We couldn't see 50 metres. First of all, you had the glow in the sky and everything was very, very bright. And then when the fire came and the smoke that came with the fire, my son thought that the neighbour's house had exploded, but as it turned out, it was a caravan that exploded. But you really couldn't see because because of the smoke. And everyone was the same. The damage was profound. Three lives lost, hundreds of homes and businesses raised. So many things happened all at once and no one knew. Like You only knew what was happening in your little bit of territory because you, you couldn't travel the roads. The roads were covered in trees by that stage. The whole place was as though a bomb had gone through the place, you see. So we didn't know until probably the next afternoon or the day after that what had actually happened in town. We heard all sorts of stories. We heard the church had been burnt, the school had been burnt. But the whole town had been virtually burnt. Just on the grapevine, you know, some people were able to get some reception on their own mobile phones. By the time the fires which tormented the Bega Valley were finally extinguished in March, hundreds of thousands of hectares of bushland would burn and an untold number of animals would die. John was there in the orange gloom on New Year's Eve morning, fighting to save his town. I witnessed the destruction that had been wrought upon the main street. All our fire trucks were deployed around in other areas, defending, for instance, the elderly citizens' units and uh, vital infrastructure like that. I was uh, able to second a couple of fire trucks that had arrived from the north, from Naruma, and we were able to take some action to defend the pharmacy, which was still standing. Shortly thereafter, a large gust of wind blew more debris across the street and the eastern side of the main street near the post office became a light. So with the very high winds and very high temperatures, there was very little we could do to save those buildings that had immediately become engulfed, but we diverted our attention to saving the adjoining buildings, particularly the post office, which we 
were successful in doing. But uh, basically, we lost that group of shops on each side of the main street at the lower end of the village. The fires tore through town nearly a year ago. And for many of us, that's been the most trying year of our lives. The pandemic changed everything almost overnight. But for Cabago, it added to a saga which even now doesn't feel over. Catherine Doolan runs a cafe called The Ground Lounge in Cabago. Absolute devastation, just seeing Cabago being burnt to the ground, uh, people's lives being destroyed, property destroyed, animals everywhere. Um, I don't know how to explain it. There's a once-in-a-lifetime event. The journey's been a long journey. We're not even close to the recovery side of this process. Absolute devastation. Cabago's Treasured Folk Festival was cancelled this year, and next year's will be too. Catherine's been working on a series of online festivals instead, the next of which will be in January. We haven't been able to gather. We haven't had many community events. We haven't been able to have any fun. Obviously, the rest of the world's in the same situation. But for us, you know, we're bushfire affected. The community is everything. We need to come together as a community and stick together because that's going to be beneficial to everybody, to everybody's mental health. Who would have thought that we'd go through drought and then we'd go through fire, then we'd go through flood and then we'd go through COVID. And uh, we've had a lot of rain the last couple of months and everything's full and the dams are full, and, and which is great. However, uh, a lot of people don't have anything to catch their water. So they've got no tanks. A lot of people have received IBC tanks, which are fantastic. However, they don't catch water. People still need to put them on the back of their ute and go to town and and get water. So it's the basics, the water, the food, the living, you know, it's nearly third world down here. I think that would shock a lot of people that one of the wealthiest countries in the whole world, and there's a multiple towns out there that still have to go in to get water and get food and get fuel and things. I mean, how does that make you feel? Uh, It makes me feel devastated. It makes me feel very disappointed. It makes me heartbroken, to be honest, that these are the conditions, this is the reality. The water's a big issue. It it keeps me up at night. In the wake of the fires, the town's relief centre was inundated with people in need. They'd lost their homes and livelihoods, some fleeing as the flames reached their back gate. Chris Walters is a coordinator for the Cabago Bushfire Relief Centre. She says at first they were looking for the basics, food, toothbrushes, clothing. Over time it's changed. People have been looking for tools because their sheds burnt down. They lost their whole lifetime of tools. Still continuing with clothing and less food now, but there are still people who need assistance with food. As time's gone on, we are now more linked in with all the services, the government agencies and other services, Lifeline, Red Cross, Salvation Army, Anglicare, and we are directing people to those services. She says the pandemic hasn't helped. It slowed everything down so that people who might have thought that they could get on and get their property sorted and fencing done and so on and so forth hasn't happened as quickly as they might have imagined it would. The cleanup, of course, took a lot longer than anybody anticipated. That's now finished, by and large, but it took six, seven months for that to occur. There were a lot of issues. There were a lot of properties that needed to be cleared, and a lot of the properties are very, very difficult to access. Those properties were fenced off, but the charred rubble was still there, visible. 
For a long time, that hung over the town, says John Walters. I think the major turning point for the town was the clean-up. For many months, we had to witness the rubble and the twisted burnt iron and, and destroyed bricks and so forth from the main street. It had safety fencing, but you could see straight through it. So we, I guess, had that mental black cloud hanging over the village up until the clean-up, which occurred a couple of months ago, finally. It was a quite a, a difficult clean-up because all of the sites were heavily asbestos-contaminated. And people need more than just food and shelter. Chris Walters again. The mental health of members of the community is waxing and waning. Yeah, some people are suffering very badly. Some people are rising to the occasion. But everybody has been affected in some way. Tony Allen is also concerned about the community's mental health. The living conditions of a lot of the people have been very, very tough. Uh, lucky so far that we've only... Uh, there's been one suicide, which no one wants to talk about. I think we've been very lucky that we haven't lost more people because of the um, the loneliness and the sense of loss, the sense of how do, I, how do I restruct my life and get back to some semblance of normal. For some, those living conditions have continued right up until now. People are still living in caravans, waiting to get development approval on new homes. One woman I spoke to lived in a shed with no running water through the winter. She relied on friends when she needed a shower. She was just too exhausted, she said, to give an interview. Chris Walters' role has shifted over the months, from that initial relief work, making sure people had enough supplies to keep them going. Now she spends a lot of time trying to keep people together. Has it changed, I guess, the pastoral care aspect of the role that you're doing? Yes, yes, that's been really difficult. That's been a very big gap in the recovery process because when there's a disaster, communities come together and help each other, which they did at the beginning, immediately after the bushfires here. But because of COVID, that was not able to happen and that has caused a lot of disconnect with people. We are actually doing a few community connection events and so forth here at the Relief Centre. The council are also doing what they're calling cuppa and chat sessions where various services are coming together and they're inviting members of the community to drop in, have a cuppa, talk to the services, see what people need, et cetera, et cetera, all within COVID restriction rules. But it has meant that people can't communicate and connect the way that they would have normally. Despite the drought and the floods and the fires and the pandemic, Cabago will be Cabago again. But there's an anxiety there now. These people have suffered an unprecedented barrage of fire. It has happened and it could happen again. Here's Tony Allen. It certainly does weigh heavily on people's minds and we've been discussing that with people, but there's a number of issues. I guess the first issue is do you go and rebuild where you were burnt out in? A lot of people who who are living an idyllic life in a bush setting and suddenly they realise that the vulnerability of that setting because of this fire, they are now saying, we're not going to go back. We don't want to get done with it. We experience that, again, that frosty and the fear that came from that fire. So they're selling blocks. The models suggest that the sorts of weather patterns Australia has seen over the last few years are only going to get worse. That means potentially more cabagos and more black summers. That much is clear. How we factor that into our lives going forward, however, is less so. And next episode, we're going to New England, to the alternative community of Waitalaba that was devastated by an unexpected fire last year before summer even started. Driving away 
knowing that I'd gotten out, that was the worst bit. Why, why is that? What? Well, that I'd gotten out and left people behind, you know, for the people that didn't make it out and that weren't aware. I just happened to walk outside. It just happened to be the school time. Otherwise, it would have been at my place without me even knowing it was there. I would have been inside getting away from the heat. That's next episode on Voice of Real Australia. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please share it with friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Everyone has a story to tell. And if you'd like to share yours, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at aust, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voiceofrealaustralia. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. Special thanks this week go to Lynn Rayner. This is an ACM podcast.